Welcome to Vector. Three, two, one, action. Hello, everyone. This is Peter Gregorio. Welcome to the Vector Interview Podcast. Each episode focuses on a different artist. We meet in person and have an in-depth discussion about life, art, and the concepts behind their work. I'm an artist, I'm based in Brooklyn, and I'm the director of Vector Productions, where along with my co-director, the Norwegian artist Javier Barrios, we host different art-related events, exhibitions, and performances around the world, and publish the international artist zine Vector. Today's episode is with the American artist, writer, and curator Ellie Krako. Ellie is an interdisciplinary artist based in New York. She has been making and exhibiting her work over the last 15 years. Her studio practice, text-based work, and curatorial projects explore themes of bodily and environmental loss, mirroring as a potential site of transformation and displaced communication. She is currently having a solo show called Linoleum Spine at the Marinero Gallery in New York City, which is on display until February 26th. So if you're in New York, go check out the exhibition. I will put links in the show notes. I went last week to the opening and it's really good work. When we did the talk back in August, she was getting everything together, stuff that she had been working on over the last two years. And I got to see everything kind of in process. It's definitely a great show. And she just put so much time and thought and care into every piece in the show. It's really something. So definitely go see it. In this new body of work, Krako reflects upon the devices of medical intervention, the architecture of medical support, and parts of the body that are recipients of such intervention. Her glazed ceramic forms reveal her lived experiences of bodily fragility, creating objects that, like her, through decades of living with an invisible chronic illness, inhabit the space between flesh and technology. Ellie and I collaborated on a project in 2018. Um, I invited Ellie to be the guest editor of Vector Artist Journal for issue eight in New York. I ran into her at the Spring Break Art Fair. It had been a while since I saw her, a few years actually, and she had been in issue three of the journal in New York that we did the launch at Interstate Projects in Brooklyn. And when I ran into her, we were kind of talking like, what have you been up to? And I was like, oh, I'm gonna do another journal in New York. It's been years. And I don't know what it was, but I got this inspiration to, at that moment, ask her to be the guest editor of the journal. And, and when you're guest editor, you kind of spearhead the project. Um, each issue takes place in a different city and focuses on artists based in that city. So Ellie picked roughly 20 artists and I picked a few. Um, they do uh, one to 10 page essays that are printed in black and white in a, a kind of beautiful white minimalist bound book. And then we do a launch at um, a venue where we give a journal away for free. We print about 500 copies and we sort of hustle to get funding. And then when we do the launch, we lay them out or give them to people um, as they walk in, or it depends on the situation. Um, but in this case, I have no idea how it happened, but somehow we wound up doing the launch at the Whitney Museum. 
which was just crazy. And because <laughs> this was a, a zine I started in 2007, and it was always kind of in small uh, gallery spaces or locations, you know. And uh, you know, somehow Ellie made it happen. And they wanted us to do uh, because we were doing lunch there. We couldn't just give away the journals. They we needed to kind of program something. And so Ellie curated a performance night where she invited eight of the artists who were in the journal who are performative in their practice to do live performances. So it was a mixture of like video and sound and experimental theater and poetry. It was an incredible night. Just, you know, we sat in the theater and we watched it. I've never really seen performance that way. Usually it's in a gallery setting or out on the street. And it really worked well. Like I want to do more of that. Um, there's something about watching performance in that kind of venue. It just elevates it and you can really pay attention. And it's also worked having different things happening one after the other. I think there were about eight performances. It was long, it went on for like an hour and a half. And it was just incredible. Um, it was so good to work with her. We just worked really well together. And now we have that like bonding experience of having gone through something together. So it was so good to go to her studio in Long Island City and see her again after so many years and uh, see her new work. And then last week I went to her exhibition and yeah, it's just, it's one of the, my favorite things about, I don't know if you want to call it the art world or the art culture. It's just the connections you make. Just artists are such special people because I don't know, I mean, I'm singling artists out, I'm an artist, but there's just something about someone devoting themselves to a practice, making that like the most important thing, even without rewards most of the time, but just for a passion and a drive, like this is the most fulfilling thing. There's just something about a personality or a soul that does that, that I can really relate to. Oh, and um, I put a link in the show notes of the video documentation of the performance night at the Whitney. We had an interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. With that said, welcome Ellie Krakow. You're listening to Vector. Hi, I'm Ellie Krakow. We're in Long Island City in my studio. I guess, I don't know what the best place to start is. Um, maybe we could talk about the recent sculptures I'm working on as a starting point. I, I'm getting ready for a show and, you know, my practice is kind of often circular. Like I'll start working in one way and then I'll get pulled to working in another way, like making sculptures and then making photographs related to the sculptures and then making sculptures related to the photographs. and they'll sort of feed in on each other. And these recent sculptures are growing out of a series of drawings I did during quarantine last spring. You know, <laughs> I'm, it's funny to think back to when we initially heard about COVID and the kinds of restrictions that it would make sense to have. Um, I called my doctor. I think you know I have a chronic illness and I called my doctor and I said, how serious should I take all of these restrictions that people are talking about. I'm on immunosuppressant medication. And she said, take them very seriously. We don't have the research yet to know, but it's very likely if you got COVID that you would 
get very, very sick and possibly die. And so I took everything very seriously at that time. And I live in a small apartment with my partner. And so I was like, well, I'm certainly not going to be making sculptures. At the time, I was working on some large-scale ceramic sculptures. Actually, the day before I went into very limited life, I pulled out this big sculpture out of the kiln. And I was like super happy with it. And I felt all excited to like keep going and keep working on what I was doing. And then I was like, oh, no, you're going home. And I was like, how do you, how do you transition from large scale ceramic work to 650 square feet that you share with someone else? And so I started making these little drawings. And they mostly started out as like drawings of the sculptures I had just finished. Like I was, I had finished the sculptures. I didn't know how they were going to exist in the world because I usually build like mounts and armatures and stands that relate very specifically to my sculptural work. And I didn't really know what that would be like yet. And so I started just drawing them from memory, kind of like, almost like longing for them. And then I was like, oh, they have to be somewhere. They can't just, they don't, the same problem that I have in the sculptural form they had in the drawing, where are they? And so I started to draw these like environments that had like these, they're figure sculptures, which is kind of a loose, that's kind of a loose use of the word figure. My work's like figurative, but very abstracted. And some of the figurative elements seem like they could be the inside of the body or the outside of the body. So then I started to figure out like, oh, well, they're in some institutional space. like. There's linoleum floors, but it's kind of weird, and I don't know if you're looking at them from above or if you're looking at them from the side. So those kinds of questions came into the drawings, but... I want to pause you there okay. just for a second, because um, there are a few things you said. First thing, welcome. Thank you for doing this. It's so great to talk to you after... How many years has it been? Like, maybe three years? Mm -hmm. And the last time I saw you, we did the vector launch at the yeah. Whitney that you spearheaded. <laughs> that was great. That was amazing. That was like one of those moments where, um, uh, what do you call it, like those ultimate... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was kind moments. of an apex moment. And it, it's weird because we, I almost feel we kind of hacked our way in there. <laughs> like we didn't even really deserve it somehow. <laughs> but we somehow like slid under the radar and it turned out to be such a, an amazing night. It was so great. Everybody was happy. All the... Artists were happy, and the performers were amazing. Like, that was just like, it really, that was one of the best nights of my life, yeah. It really was fun. I was actually, before you came over, I was yeah. talking to a friend, and they were like, how do you know Peter? And I was like, well, I had a piece in his journal, Vector, <laughs> like in 2008, and then 10 years later, he invited me to guest edit this journal, and then we did this amazing event at the Whitney, and, you know, that really was like, that was so beautiful. Like the performances were just like off the charts amazing yeah. and they fed into each other really beautifully. Yeah, I it, feel very proud of that too. It was just one of those things where everything came together well. And I want to talk about that a little bit too. Like mm -hmm. why do things come together so well sometimes and other <laughs> things don't? But to go back to what you were saying, uh -huh. I, I think it's amazing how artists have the ability to kind of pivot with whatever situation they're in. They have that need to be creative and, or we have that need to be creative and we approach, whenever we come to a wall, we just start analyzing the wall or like creating 
something completely alternative, you know, like digging a hole or <laughs> building a helicopter or, or like turning around and going a different direction. I and love so, that idea yeah. of analyzing the wall. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, we're, we're kind of weird like that. Um, the other thing is you talked about the longing, like you were doing these drawings and you were longing. And I can completely relate to that because it's weird how the things that we make, there's some kind of, we feel like either they're our lovers or our children or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I we just, miss them. We miss them. The craziest, so that's all. The craziest thing, really, I mean, that you bring that up, you know, it was a long time between when I left the studio in March until I didn't come back to the studio until September. So it was like the end of spring, all of summer, and really into the fall. And I got back to the studio. There had actually, it was, you know, there was a lot of ups and downs throughout the pandemic. And one of the crazy up moments for me is I called my doctor in August and I said, it looks like my partner is going to have to go back to work. Do I need to think about my health in a different way? And my doctor said, actually, you know, there's mounting evidence that the medicine you're on is actually protective against COVID. And you're probably not going to get super sick and you're probably not going to die if you get COVID. And I was like, oh my God, that means I can go to the studio. Like it was literally like... How many months was it out I of guess, the studio? March, April, May, June. Like six, six and a half months. Yeah. Which, you know, and I think everybody had things like that during that time. I don't think that was unique obviously but i got back to the studio and i was making something in clay the day i got back and i literally started weeping while i was touching the material and i was like sort of shocked myself i mean i'm somebody who cries regularly so i'm not like surprised by crying but i never had before cried while touching clay like it had, that had not been my reaction <laughs> but i think that it relates to that kind of deep intimacy that we feel with the materials or the work that we do. That, For sure. Yeah, yeah, so that sense of longing or that sense that it's like intimate like a lover or a child or a, just some, something really close was definitely like... Yeah, and we... I don't know about you, but I don't feel complete if I'm not making. I mean, I work on these other projects that are more like production or curatorial. But it's not the same. There's something about the making. Of, I totally agree. Yeah, somehow, like, this is why I'm alive. This is what I'm meant to do, <laughs> kind of space, you know? Yeah, I think we share so, that in common. Because yeah. I also, you know, I run a gallery at my job, and I've done different curatorial projects over the years. And, and I teaching love, too. And right? I teach yeah, also, so, yeah. yeah. And I love all those they're like the social space of the arts and it's really that's like fuels me in a different way but what happens in the studio that's like what we do with our own minds and our own hands about how we relate to the world and that's just so you can't you can't do that another way that's the only way through the visual arts to really engage it's like engagement with yourself i guess what was it like being in the apartment doing that? I mean, you weren't even, you weren't teaching, so everything, or were you teaching remotely? I was teaching remotely. Yeah, tell me about that time. I'm kind of curious, 
just a little bit about like what that was like and then we can get into your current work and your past work and all that. Yeah, so in March we were supposed to have spring break from my job and we were sent home. Spring break, go have spring break. And instead of one week this year, it's going to be two weeks for students. The second week of those two weeks, teachers were expected to turn their classes into remote classes. I feel extremely fortunate that the class I was teaching, I was only teaching one class at the time because of my gallery work. The class I was teaching was a time-based class. And so the class is called Time and Space. And Actually, I had planned to do the space part of the class um, where people would do installation projects and things that dealt with physical space. But I was like, never mind, we're going to deal with like digital and uh, conceptual space instead. And so I was able to transition the class into something that worked remotely. And it was, it was challenging, but the main challenge of teaching in the spring of 2020 was really how to support students to continue learning in this like global catastrophe really and figure out what mattered what mattered in terms of what they learned was it about community was it about staying connected was it about creativity was it about an outlet for processing what was in what was in front of all of us and i guess probably we finished the semester in may so it was really the end of March, all of April, and the beginning of May was really that. was like my time was very taken up with thinking about how to support my students in that time. And then during the summers when I started working on the drawings, and I was home like all the time. And my partner was working from home. So we were both working from home, doing our jobs from home. And then I turned our little, we have a like 30 by 40 inch little table that we eat on and I turned it into my drawing table and I just worked there on these like 9 by 12 inch drawings they're colored pencil and gouache and you know it was like not it's not the way I usually work I, I think you know my practice usually has sculpture photography and text in it and somehow text didn't really draw me in at that time I thought it might I thought it would be a good time to work on a text-based project but it turned out that I was more interested in color and I don't know. So, and <laughs> my partner at the time was working on all these paper mache things and we had this like folding table. So the two of us are in there like transforming our studio into, you know, whatever can fit on a tiny table and joking around and eating popsicles and taking bike rides and hoping we don't die, you know? <laughs> it sounds kind of nice in a way. I guess it was a real test on the relationship, too. Right? <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I imagine like a lot of people got really closer and a lot of people didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you're right. <laughs> you mentioned digital space. I'm curious about that. And we can talk about that now or later. I don't know how much I have to say about yeah. it, but I, will, I can say a couple of things. Yeah. One is that when I first moved to New York City in 2006, I didn't have a studio for a while. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna imagine a football field that's behind my computer screen. And that's my studio. And I have to imagine that that space actually exists. Because as a sculptor, going into digital space is like, well, for me, I'm sure there's other sculptors who approach it differently, but for me, I'm, I'm a very tactile person. Like, 
even if I'm working in photographs, I think about them as a material. Like everything is, everything's material and related to the body and related to the hand in the way I think about my art practice. And so for me, digital space is an in interesting thing because I want to imagine like reaching into it or stepping into it or letting my mind take it up. But I think I kind of wanted to really do that with my students. I actually, the project that I ended up doing in that semester was I had us make an artist journal together. Totally That's based cool. on Vector. Yeah, That's you know, great. it was great. Wow. So it was based on two things. I the experience I had with working with you on Vector and at the Bronx Museum, I also, we created these zines every year. I worked on, um, as part of the teen council. I led the teen council there for many years before I got this job at Framingham State University. And we always made a zine that was their creative content driven by a theme that mattered to them. So I sort of modeled it. It was like a hybrid between Vector and the teen council museum project and so like and I think it was great because it was something they could collaborate on but they had to do it from a distance and then when they were printed they each get a copy and then they have something that's tactile and material that was connected them through a digital space or a virtual space so yeah that turned out to be a great remote project yeah I'm happy that that the vector could be an inspiration and it could like somehow I mean, it's a cool project to do with students because there is architecture to a book. Mm -hmm. There's an architectural aspect to it, and so you gotta fill it. I guess I love this idea uh, of imagining this space in the digital realm. I've actually never done that before, but I, I'm gonna try that. Oh, that's cool that you did that. I It must have been exciting to see the outcomes from the different students. It was great. I repeated it again this year. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot more time to plan, obviously, but it was so successful in terms of like generating dialogue and conversation about their actual interests that I was like, oh, this is a winner. So it's cool you had that too. Like I don't know about you, but when I got back from Germany and then I was sort of in quarantine too, I had a hard time. Like I had all these plans to do all these different things in quarantine, and it just didn't really work out that way <laughs> you know even in this podcast like I thought oh, I'll do it one every two weeks but it just didn't work out that way so it's good that you had the teaching to kind of occupy your time and then when you were ready you went back to you were inspired to make again like I guess these drawings and hopefully you'll show them sometime. Yeah, know? I think I... Or, or maybe they're just personal, but... Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, I showed them for one night at this... I had a one-night show opportunity at Below Grand in the Lower East Side, and the show... I showed a sculpture that was up for a month, and they had this new space that wasn't quite finished, and I said, oh, for the reception, how about we put up these drawings? And they liked the idea, so we did that, and that was great. And it really inspired me to want to show the drawings. And I'm, I'm getting ready for a show. I think I'll put them in. I mean, I have to see how this, the rest of this work unfolds. But yeah, I think it was really fun. Like I was saying, like drawing's not like my go-to way of working, but there are things that I could work out in the drawings about my imagination that I haven't so much been able to get out of my mind and into the world in other ways. So it was really 
it was super useful to work on the drawings. And I think I was saying before, like I have this back and forth, like my previous series, Arm Armature, which I think you probably, that's what you're more familiar with, has these photos of my arms and these sculptures of armatures. And they literally are in a call and response. Like I make a sculpture, then I make a photo based on it. And then I make a sculpture based on the photo. And they kind of have this internal dialogue going on. But I think the drawings, when I came back into the studio, have really had an impact on how I want to not only display the sculptures, but what needs to happen with the sculptures. Like this new group of sculptures are very related to the, it's like I'm trying to have them express being on the inside and the outside of the body at once, which the drawings are all, you know, like, I, let's see, I have to, this is where I have to kind of figure out how to, yeah, give yeah, a question. No, but you can go deep. Okay. We have time. This is like an opportunity for you to really, you don't have to just give me the, the surface. You can go deep. Like, I want to know the inner workings behind what's going on with the sculptures. Fabulous. Yeah. That's, that's super exciting. Because yeah, get into it. I actually haven't really fully written about or articulated what's happening with the work. And so this is sort of a perfect opportunity to try to put language to it. Sometimes a conversation can help us formulate what we already know. Yeah. So yeah. Go, go for okay. It. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Well, so I then I will rewind. So I finished the show and this body of work, Arm Armature, and there was one piece in it that everybody was like, ugh, that's kind of gross. And the work is pretty geometric and contained and there's physical bodily things in it, but it has bright colors, it uses chroma key backdrops. It's actually not very gross in the way it's made. It's much slicker and kind of, it draws you in in ways that advertising might draw you in. So it was very interesting to me that I had this repeated reaction to this one piece that people thought was kind of gross. And I knew why they thought it was gross. The piece, so all the sculptures have photographs of arms and objects, sometimes objects, and the objects, I think of them as like quote unquote neutral objects. They're like wires or pieces of plastic or a rectangular package or a block that's been painted gray or a cell phone that you see from the side. Things that don't have really have their own content, but can kind of have their own content. And the cell phone obviously seems a little different than the other things, but I call it neutral because really, unless you're interacting with it, it's just a rectangle with a shiny face. And then it's attached to our hand. And so I got interested in the idea of the cell phone as this neutral object that literally is part of our arm and hand. That's kind of another story. So the piece that I'm talking about that people thought was gross had a ceramic piece that went kind of straight up and then bent like as if at an elbow kind of slightly bent like you're leaning on a table and your elbow's a little bent and then it had a photograph that showed an arm and it had a metal an l-shaped metal wire that ran along that bent right where the elbow would bend and 
I think people thought it was gross for two reasons. One, one because on the ceramic object, the glaze kind of dripped a little and looked kind of like the skin was sagging. And the L-shaped piece of metal referenced that moment in your, the crook of your elbow where they would put in like a needle in. Yeah. And I hadn't thought of it as, as gross at all. I think because I have like such a deep connection to having infusions. Like I get infusions every eight weeks. I've had so many needles in my arms. Like I don't know if I'm numb to it or if I've built up like, you know, a relaxed attitude around it, but I didn't really think it was gross. But it was what was interesting to me was seeing people think it was gross and being like, oh, I'm trying to talk about something that's actually my experience. Like, that's what I'm trying to talk about in this work. And you know, when you finish a body of work and then people respond to it and you're like, I had no idea that's what I was aiming at. And so this piece kind of, I knew a lot of the things I was doing in that work and I think a lot of the things I intended to do happened. And then there was this thing that was like, back to the like football field, like as if yeah. somebody had lobbed a ball way farther than I could imagine. And I was like, that's where I'm running. I didn't know I was running there, but I'm gonna run there now. And so this work that I'm working on now, I'm trying to look kind of more pointedly or more directly about at what it's like to live with a chronic illness. And just, you know, like I know people can kind of be like, I don't know, I don't mean it like, boo-hoo, I have a chronic illness, but like it actually is what my life is like. So like, what is this life like? And I have like amazing medical treatment and I live a pretty normal life and, and I have a really intimate relationship with needles and everything inside and outside of my body and doctors. And so the work I'm doing now, I'm trying to, I guess I would say I'm trying to articulate like what is it like to know the inside of your body and the outside of your body and have them both in mind all the time, which is kind of how I would describe what my adult life has been like. Cause I got sick like right around my very early twenties is when I started to get sick, so. Yeah, that's this idea of in the, the inside and the outside of the body. A lot of times I think we're numb to the inside of our body yet there really is no separation from inside and outside. So when you reveal that, whenever it's revealed in anything, we tend to think it's gross. Like when we see a skeleton in a movie or a zombie movie or operating table, something, right? So we're always um, freaked out by it. <laughs> but yet you're right, when you have a chronic illness, that separation doesn't exist. You're constantly your, your normal life is this transparency between the two. And I imagine you didn't like intentionally intend, you know, you didn't intentionally like go to say all that, but you're just talking about the things that are the most intimate to you. So through materials and then like, uh, I guess you created this openness in the work and then people took that and ran with it, like you said. Now you can, now in reaction to that, now you're saying you're going to kind of start to program that a little bit, right? Like yeah. you have, you know what I mean? You created this like open source code <laughs> and now you're like, huh, maybe I can control the direction I want this to go in. 
is this normal? Is this how you've always worked? I mean, the armatures, they do have a kind of body and skeletal <laughs> slash well, skin, you know? Yeah, so that whole, so I knew I was interested in the armatures. You know, I started that series. I would go to the museum like any good sculpture student. I would go to the museum to look at old sculptures and like learn from them. And I would always take my camera. I use my camera as a note-taking tool. I'm always taking pictures of things that kind of... I do the same. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very, it's an awesome yeah. note-taking tool where people would always have a sketchbook now. Yeah. People have, maybe they have a sketchbook, but they definitely have a camera. And I ended up with this catalog of photos of the armatures. And I was like, oh, I'm not interested in the sculptures. I'm interested in the armatures. What's that about? And it was almost accidental, but I knew there was something physical and metaphorical about it for me because they're these like anonymous structures that support something very precious and so when I started I was thinking oh like there's a whole team of people who make these museum mounts these armatures and they're designed to like cradle our most precious objects that have been like ruptured out of architecture, stolen from the land that they've been in, brought here. They're given like this crazy second life in the museum as like a precious object. They were precious in another way in their original world. But somebody's made this thing that cradles them in a position so we can look at them in a way that somehow resembles the way they once were. But I just got super interested in these anonymous makers who try to, and the armatures are meant to be invisible. And so I knew there was something very interesting and I set out in that project to use my body to learn from the armatures because they were, they had gestures that I was like, oh, what would happen if I did that with my hand? That gesture of how that piece of metal holds that stone. And then when I started doing that, I started thinking, oh, that armature is a sculpture in its own right. And so I was thinking about that back and forth and the metaphor of support and anonymous support. And I did kind of know that was related to being a person who has, I have constant support, which is meant to be invisible and not talked about, medical support, family support, all kinds of support. But I really was thinking about like the medical support I get, I'm not really supposed to like, I'm healthy enough, I'm not supposed to mention it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I understand. You totally about understand. About health yeah. problems, and we do have this. Well, anyway, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But so, I don't know, it's like, I knew that was there in that work. And I have, you know, I have this weird background, like you're talking about programming, and like, I have this weird kind of two parallel backgrounds. I have a background as a potter, ceramic background, making functional things. And I have a background um, in art training, which is much more conceptual. And if there's any two fields that never would meet, those are them. Yeah. <laughs> like, like never would meet. The conceptual, theoretical, and the ceramic. And the functional ceramic. Yeah. And I actually, I kind of love both equally. And so you see it in my practice that I really love materials and I lean on materials, and I love ideas, and I lean on ideas, and so I think it's not out of character for me to be like, oh, there's an idea, actually I wanna control that a little more, but I also like 
the materials I work with to teach the ideas. I think there's a lot to know, like from the way we work. I, I work on the potter's wheel to make parts for my sculptures. And I was thinking the other day while I was working that it's like the perfect metaphor for knowing the inside and the outside at the same time because I make tubes. I Basically, I make cylinders and I use them as like bodily tubes, but they're also kind of like plumbing tubes. They're like, and you're literally, while you're making them, touching the inside and the outside simultaneously to create the thickness of the wall you want and you have to work with the pressure on the inside and the outside very thoughtfully, tenderly, understanding that they're reacting to each other. And I had never had that thought. I mean, I obviously know you're dealing with the inside and the outside because you're making a even wall. So you have to think about the inside and the outside. And, but I don't know, it's just like a moment where I was like, oh, this is actually the perfect conceptual tool. Like there's no other thing that means you touch the inside and the outside like that. There's, that's the tool. It's like, that's true. I never thought of it that way. And there is, I, I don't know if it's in our time, our moment, but I've noticed a lot of artists who I talk to, we tend to gravitate towards these in-between states. Hmm. I don't know if it's right now or if it's always been the case, but we're somehow obsessed with these, like the line between hot and cold or the line between the inside and the outside or like, the threshold where there's you're on the edge and there's some does that worry you no I like it I yeah maybe it's we're thinking about what's happening right now yeah with humanity or the body and technology I don't know but I want to go back I don't want to go off on that tangent well I just am interested <laughs> but we can talk about that I'm interested yeah. because I think it's really yeah let's get into it then yeah. I haven't so much thought about it as a, as something of our era, but the climate crisis is like this crazy pressing threshold that we are at, like we're at it. Like I'm from California and my home state is always on fire. There's like a season and it's on fire. And I like call my dad and I'm like, is it time for you to leave your house, net, house yet? Or is it gonna catch on fire right now? He's like, no, it won't catch on fire. We'll wait for the firefighters to give us warning. And I'm like, are you sure? Is it okay? And it's like, that's a threshold. Yeah, it's weird. It's like you have monsoon season in parts of the world, and now you have like fire season. Yeah. <laughs> and this might be for the next few hundred thousand years. Who knows? Who knows? Just like we had glaciers at one point. But like, you're right. The climate crisis is another example of the planet and humanity the threshold the line between the mm -hmm. two is getting transparent as well because our effects now are like completely manifesting whereas probably for most of civilization we could yeah. not really even pay attention we didn't have to worry about it. there was an endless supply of nature yeah and yeah, and I would like to talk about the technology and humanity thing. But you said something about the museum before, and I don't want to miss that, which was that you, when you went in the museum, you saw the armatures. Mm -hmm. And it seems like your work, the armature and the sculpture, you don't know where one starts and where the other begins. Absolutely. You know, or ends. 
you know, one starts and the other ends. I mean, we all have these armatures in our bodies, right? So <laughs> everything does. Yeah, you know, just... Uh, yeah, oh, go ahead, no, no, your I just, I'm just trying to, like, think about how you have this thing that's, I guess, I don't want to even call it a theme. It's more like an obsession or like a vision or an insight. And it's this feeling and you just go with it for years and years and years. Like, it's such a strange thing. Like, I imagine non-artists are like, like you're pursuing this weird, amorphic, conceptual, tactile idea for years. Like, how many years? Like 15 years or something? <laughs> And it's like, there's almost no purpose to it, right? It's like <laughs> an obsession, but yet it's so important to go as deep as you can. And it's such a fascinating thing that artists do, right? Like we... Totally. You know, it's funny you said that, yeah. the obsession thing. I Usually when I give artist talks, I start by saying, this is a talk about my artwork, but it's mostly a talk about my obsession. Like that's usually like my lead in line. Yeah. It has to do with obsession. I think obsession's so important. Like, and I, I don't use that word lightly. I think, you know, the things that matter to us that we can actually let our minds, like, sink into, I think that's actually, like, a radical act. Like, we're, I don't, I don't know how exactly to articulate this, but, like, we're set up in our society to kind of stay on the surface of things. Um, to get distracted by things, to get pulled here, pulled there, to maintain just enough interest to spend money on stuff. Um, and when we get obsessed with things, we may or may not spend any money. It's what happens in your mind when you become deeply engrossed in uh, like a, I don't know, the word that's coming to mind is like unbridled curiosity, where you just totally want to get into something that's of no use like you said it's like not there's no use but the things that have no use in our society probably are the things that are most useful to humanity so like that's like really interesting to me like i have to say it's like funny i feel like i'm talking very openly with you about health and how it relates to my work but that's sort of new to me yeah. um and i think that's because I have felt like it's uncool is probably not quite the right word, but like. I get it. Yeah, like you're not supposed it. to you're talk supposed about to it. Talk you're just not it. supposed to talk about it. Where's there's this, it seems like, like everybody's trying to get to optimal health, and yeah. then here is this situation where you just can't. Yeah. The best you can do is like feel good enough to function today. Yeah, like that's exactly. What happens when you have a chronic illness? Yes, and you can feel that can be good enough. Like that can yeah. be an awesome life. Yeah, you get used to it, and then that becomes your life. Yeah, and you don't really miss. You know, there's a period of time where you're kind of mourning or coming to terms with it, but then after a while, you're kind of like, whatever. You just get numb to it, and then it's a matter of just like trying to feel good enough to do what you want to do that day, right? Like, I mean, Yeah, I see it that way. Yeah. And also, like, I guess, like, the idealistic side of me is, like, could sort of rejoice in that this is, you know, like, everyone gets to love their life. 
whether it has pain or illness or times when you can't do things like I remember when I first got sick. This is probably too dark of a story, but I'm gonna say it yeah, anyway. No, go for it. <laughs> if you, we could always edit it out. Okay. But let's talk about. It. You know, I also grew up with a chronic illness. Yeah. I was born with um, arthritis. Yeah. And so, um, and I definitely know what it's like to deal with something your whole life and doctors. And I actually look back with fondness at some of these like hospital memories even though that sucked at the time like there was something weird and beautiful like reading a weird novel or watching some weird show and I got to live that you know but go on yeah well that's sort of that's the thing that's interesting to me is like there's really interesting parts of everything we have in our lives and we learn things from all the things we do so it's like anyhow so the story you know like I'm in my early 20s, I was like so sick, just so sick. Like when I think about it, I, hard, I try not to think about it too much, but I was so sick, it's like laughable. And I remember somebody said something to me about some, like some really mild symptom. They were like, if that ever happened to me, I would just have to kill myself. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, honey, that's not what would make you kill yourself. Like in my head, I was like, that's what you think? like. Oh no, <laughs> like you can withstand much more than that. And like, you know, as somebody who has withstood a huge amount of pain, and I'm sure you can relate, like we can handle a lot. And I think it's interesting that we can. When we have to. When we have to, <laughs> yeah. When you have to, you have to, and you do. And, or most, most of the time you do. And that's very interesting and that we have that it's taboo to talk about that is actually unfortunate because it's one of the, like to me, it's like one of the places I've been the strongest in my life is when I've had the most health issues and I've learned so much about myself. I wouldn't ask to repeat that and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but that we're quiet about that as a, as a community, I guess that seems like a loss in a certain way to me. Like. I don't know. Well, I never talk about my... In fact, this is the first time I'm talking about the arthritis. And I don't think anybody knows in my extended circle beyond like my closest, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that because it's like, I mean, that's why when I started to be like, okay, you know, like I finished that, I had that piece and I was like, oh no, if I take this head on, like, I'm going to make a colonoscopy figure. Yeah. You know, like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, exactly. I was like, that's like so embarrassing. And you're like, you want gross? I'll give you gross. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you think that's gross? <laughs> exactly. But so then I started working on it, and I was like, well, what lets it be? what makes it a colonoscopy figure? Like, what's the gesture? What position are you in? And I think you saw the piece, the colonoscopy mm-hmm. figure out below Grand, and, you know, that space was, like, so perfect for it in a way. And at first I didn't think it was because I had to build this mirror so you could see the front and the back of it. And once I put it together, I was like, oh, the mirror is perfect. You never see the inside of the body without mediation. You see it with a camera, like a lens goes up your butt, 
and that's how you see the inside. And so that you have to look through a mirror to see the backside, to see there was like that tailpipe part was like, it was like better than I could have come up with had I not had the constraints of the small space and the impossibility of walking around it. But it was interesting to be like, okay, so if you are, if I'm gonna go head on at chronic illness and it's gonna be personal, like for me, I mean, I get, I guess I get the luck of having a digestive disease. So everything's a little funny, which is actually great for talking about health because it cuts through the taboo. You know, like I can make poop jokes in my work and that's great. Like all of these are like kind of like intestines and kind of like arms and that's funny to me and also to other people. So I think there's, that's kind of nice as a way in to a topic where like, you've never talked about your health. I hadn't until maybe two years ago, I did a show where I mentioned chronic illness in my statement and everybody talked to me about it. Like everybody who saw the show and looked at the statement was like, what's this about? Well, I don't want to ask too much, but this is very interesting. And I was like, okay, go ahead, Ellie. Like try to be visible with this thing you're meant to have invisible. And maybe people look at the sculptures differently when you mention it. Because then so. they look at it in that context. Because a lot of people might not ever know, like for you it might be obvious that mm -hmm. they're intestinal or arms. People might look at your stuff and not have any idea. They might just look at it aesthetically as like shapes, right? Like, like weird, uncanny shapes that don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But then you mention the health thing and then they're like, oh. <laughs> now I have to read this differently. And then you're like, ooh. And then you start to, I wonder how important it is to mention it or talk about it in the statement or the title or to just let it ride on its own. And some people get it and some people don't. Yeah, I mean, that's always a question, right? How much information do we give people? And do they have to get it? Is that important to you? I think actually, you or know, you're just playing with it. Sometimes you do this and sometimes you do that. Yeah, I feel like I'm more in that world. I mean, the drawings are pretty like um, obviously bodily and in liminal spaces like schoolhouse, a morgue, a hospital, you know, places where you have linoleum floor tiles, basically. So they start to be kind of clear in a weird, surreal way. But I live in this abstraction realm because I'm, I am interested in what you're talking about where people can come to it and be like, oh, that's an interesting shape. Like, what is that? How am I getting my information from that shape? And, you know, I, I like that there's a point of entrance that is, you know, related to like Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore and this yeah. sense of like the monumental and this like, beautiful modernist form. I, I can't say that I really head on try to make things look like beautiful modernist forms, but I like that I slip between sloping modernism and intestines. That's interesting to me <laughs> that you could kind of be like, oh, I'd love to have uh, that on my... Uh, it's like Matthew Barney meets Henry Moore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's things that... Yeah, there and the, both of them, there is a kind of obsessive quality to that work. <laughs> Something about those Henry Moore sculptures, like I remember when I was really young and I'd look at those books and I'd look at every single page because I was like, what's the next one look like? What's the Like, it wasn't just like, oh, I get it. Yeah. There's something about them 
where I wanted to look at every page of a 300 page book, you know. And then same with Matthew Barney, it's like he's dealing with that grossness and the inside and the outside and pushing you kind of to that edge of um, yuck (laughs) (laughs) or fetish, you know. Yeah, so I get both of the realms. But you also have this conceptual quality, which I don't think either of them have. No, I do stay then, in like a coolness, like, um, yeah. you know, Adrian Piper is like a hugely important influence for me in my early years of making art. And actually, you know, she really dealt with her relationship to her body and taboos around her body. And she did it with humor and she did it in ways that pushed people away and pulled people towards her. And I think that's kind of like, maybe like she's the third thing in the mix if you're gonna put Henry Moore and Matthew Barney and Adrian Piper and stir them in a pot. <laughs> that's strange. Yeah, although that's I would a lean- a strange combination. I would lean more towards like for... Alina Zapotnikow than Matthew Barney. Do you know yeah, her work? Yeah, I just went to Matthew yeah. Barney because it's like, he just has entered my yeah. mind as the yes body body and yeah. gross yeah. inside inside Co- yeah. colonoscopy yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so he's not he didn't invent that yeah he didn't I mean yeah look at like Hieronymus Bosch or something you yes. know like and, Hans yeah. Belmer yeah yeah but to go back to what you're saying the coldness I think that's there's something there about that like the one problem is we just never spend enough time with an object (laughs) an art object like your work I imagine takes just unfolds very slowly over time like I wonder what would happen if I had to stay in a room with nothing except for one of your sculptures for like 24 hours or a week you know and how I start to become attached to it and what will come out of it, what unfolds. Like that would be almost like a cool project to spend 24, 48, 72 hours with one sculpture or object and write about that whole experience in detail, even though it seems like the most boring, nerdy project ever, (laughs) somehow it becomes this catalyst for everything, right? And you pay attention, that act of paying attention would lead to maybe new insights about, I don't know, language, humanity, being, life, uh, you know what I mean? I do, yeah. Do you know Jonathan Van Dyke? Oh, you do know Jonathan Van Dyke was in the yeah, journal I, mean, I, I did with you. Personally, but he I does a project where he looks closely at a painting um, for eight hours a day. Um, I like that kind of thing. Yeah, you would really like this. Does work. he write about it, or he's I don't think he creating does. another artwork that he's creating, is talking about yes, that? Yes, he's which is cool too. It's very cool, but actually, I think he would be interested to talk to you about that. That long. Maybe um, I'll interview him. You know, I that'd be awesome. Have a long vector list, but I'd like. To, <laughs> I need to get more guys. The guys are very shy. <laughs> what? I don't know um, why. I can. They're more concerned about the coolness thing. Well, it's so funny you said that because this morning I was talking to a friend and I was like, 
I think I have to not be worried at all about being cool during this conversation with Peter no. because it's like really long. This and is the nerdiest podcast ever. Like it's like so long, <laughs> and I was like, it just has to be us. Like that's what it's just that's us. it. It's just us talking, and, and it's to me it's historical because like each artist is spends most of their life doing a deep dive into their thing and it's so unique and absurd and uncanny and out of the box and it doesn't relate to anything outside of that and i think it's worth documenting um i have no idea if anybody will be interested in it because it's not like crypto or tech or neuroscience or that seems to be what every podcast is about <laughs> you know like physics which i love i listen to all those but i think they're missing out a lot of these podcasters they've like i listen to like there's like five podcasts i listen to that are really um great and they talk to so many different people so fascinating right not one of them had ever had an artist like a whole group i mean they've had scientists and business and economists i mean everything out there not it's almost like everybody is afraid to talk to an artist or they just don't understand it or they can't relate or they just think there's nothing there i don't know what it is maybe it has but. to do with that thing you said about it being an obsession that actually doesn't have a use like we're very obsessed with utility in our world yeah. so I guess if artists aren't super famous people don't know that they have a use or who says something has to have a use at all right I mean we're like <laughs> Thank that's you, why Peter. we're so rupture we such a rupturing mm -hmm. way of life because we just turn everything inside out and then in fact we take things that have a use and then we'll break them and reformulate them <laughs> until they don't have a use. Like that's how out of the box we are. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's amazing. And I challenge these other people to, like I have a feeling that, and we talked about the future a little bit, right? Technology mm -hmm. and also, but I have a future that our way is going to become more and more important. I don't know why. I don't think the world's ready for it yet. They're ready for it in context of like going to an art show or going to a museum. Mm -hmm. And that's like a comfortable place to see art. But I don't know if the world's ready for this way of thinking. It's really hard to Except Grass. we really might need it. Like I feel like going back. I have a feeling back, we will, but I don't know how, like why, going, or what its purpose is. Just going back to thinking about like yeah. climate change, we're gonna need radical creativity. Like things that are working need to be changed, and some of that will happen through engineering and physics and science. But like I, I was had this conversation with another educator, and we were talking about teaching creativity, and how important it is to equip young people with the capacity to use their brains in ever-expanding ways and if you have art students who are maybe not maybe won't even become quote-unquote artists but are learning creativity you have this kind of vast openness to the way you approach the things you do which is I think what 
we do as artists is we try to remain deeply engaged and like like you said like taking things that work and breaking them like we keep opening them up and seeing if there's more we can do with them and so I think that kind of creativity is just going to be essential as we continue to see like what happens on our planet and yeah I think creativity become will become more and more important I think because of AI and machine learning and advancements in technology the creative is like our kind of um, the importance will grow because a lot of this other stuff will be automated mm-hmm. you know so in fact I I think that uh, they always talk about like getting to super intelligence artificial intelligence but they're always talking about throwing more engineering or mathematics at it, but I have a feeling mm-hmm. the answer is in creativity, throwing more creativity at it. But I don't really understand that, but I have a feeling they'll never get there until they incorporate creative thinking. I think that's what consciousness, somehow that's an important ingredient in consciousness. Well, that's what's so exciting yeah. it about... It might be conscious. <laughs> that's what's so exciting yeah. about being communicating yeah. is that you get yeah. to have creative thoughts and they meet other person's creative thoughts and then you have like yeah we don't even know where we're going just yeah. in this conversation but we're like two conscious beings and we're kind of interfacing mm-hmm. and and we're creating a sculpture between us in a way right it's like <laughs> you know it's like stretching and moving and going over there and down there and like into the hospital and into the gallery space and like it's all like weird and Anyway, talk. I I want to hear from you. I can go off on tangents. Cause you get me going. I'm just like tubes, arms. Yeah, I went and saw that. Oh, you yeah, you saw the yeah, and I yeah. took pictures and. Oh, I remember. Yeah, you sent some. I didn't go inside. You couldn't. Okay, I didn't see drawings or anything. Else. No, that was just one night only. The drawings were up just for one night, during because they. This is kind of a long story, but the door that they were putting on the gallery had arrived with a missing part and so they had to postpone the show that was going to be in their inner space and so that was open so for one night I put up the drawings because we were there and we could keep track of them and then I just took them down that night it was just a kind of fun opportunity to get to what is that place there's like a gallery inside of what what is it is so cool it's like a store so below grand it's such a great speaking of like creative and artist-run spaces it really is like a wonderful spot there's nine artists who collaboratively run the space they take turns curating exhibitions and for i guess the last four years they've just had that window box where my sculpture was and it's inside of wow like trading which is like a wholesale trading place. Like, you know, like they sell cups and yeah, yeah. things I, like that. Yeah, yeah. Because I went to find it and I was like, oh, it's one of these stores in yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. It's like you see those stores all the time. Totally. Like, sometimes you walk in and you're and like, I, ah. And they <laughs> have a really, so the, the artists who run the space have a great relationship with the trading company, like the WOW Trading, and I guess they've been good landlords. And so they rented another little room directly behind the window box and it's only open on the weekends but you can walk in to the trading place and then go in another door and they have a a small inside gallery so that they can have like they can show a little more work 
And it's kind of, it seems really cool that they expanded like that. So they have, I don't know, if you look at their website, you'll see like all the history of the window box shows. Yeah, they've done a lot. They've done a lot. And it's, I didn't realize it was an artist run. Yeah, That's it's cool. really cool. It's a cool spot. I like artist run projects like yeah. that. Especially ones that last for a while. It's kind of. Yeah, I think they kind of surprise themselves at how yeah. how much they hit on something that people wanted and needed and having it really is I mean a, a lot like Vector it's a space for artists creativity to get to have as much room as possible yeah I'm just thinking of uh, some of the things you said before I'm trying to like well was there anything that we brushed over that you wanted to get into or we pretty much got into it. I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things. Yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, I guess, I mean, the other thing that's kind of interesting to talk about related to the drawings and how they relate to these sculptures, which I think also touches on something you were saying is like, does it matter if people know what they're looking at? Is, I feel like the bit, I have big question marks on my plate right now, you know, like I feel like we always in our studio have things we know what we're doing and then question marks that are like the horizon. But my big question mark is like when these sculptures, I mean, they're obviously they're not fired yet. They'll go through the kiln. I have to choose colors for them because they'll be glazed. And I also have to choose where they live. Like, you know, like the colonoscopy figure has that custom built shelf or stands that are like kind of like medical stands on wheels and I do have questions about like are these resolved I've been working with these photographs of linoleum and thinking about like what happens if linoleum is then printed as an image and can that tie in with these sculptures or is that something else and so I feel like that question of display which goes back to the armatures at the museum but also is just that's like such a big question mark for me is like what are what's the context for an object and I think of myself as making like autonomous objects that they don't exactly need a context, but whatever they sit on is usually something that I consider. And that's kind of like a big question mark area for me. And I keep looking back to my drawings and being like, oh, are they gonna sit on mirrors? Are they gonna sit on linoleum? Are they gonna <clears throat> sit on some kind of medical card? Are they gonna have a cushion? Like what's, what's gonna give them context but still allow them to be autonomous, which is kind of an interesting puzzle for me to solve. How far does that extend? Like, let's say you had a solo exhibition in uh, a museum space. Mm -hmm. So how far do you extend this, like, you have the object, then you have the stand, and then you have the thing the stand's sitting on. How far do you go? Yeah. Like, if you were given full access to this one room, how far would you go? Would it keep going or would you, to the rest of the room, like would you change the entire environment? Like would yeah. you rebuild the architecture? How far would it go? Would you like get excavators and start digging holes <laughs> and reforming the earth? I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's kind of the question. I mean, where's for, the line? For you know? me, you know, so there's like installation artists, right, who really do consider everything in the room. And I've never really thought of myself like that. And I kind of, it's kind of weird, but I almost have that as like a, I don't want to do that. Like, you know how in your mind you sometimes have things you want to do and things you don't want to do? 
that's on my list is like I don't really want it to I don't really want to make an environment that feels like walking into a drawing and that has to do with I think my interest in it's the relationship between the mind and the object or the person and the object like I not that I don't think that it's interesting to do that for some people but for me I have this kind of desire for one level of separation which I would call like the contemplative space between the viewer and the object so like let's say this is a probably at some point completely go back on what I'm about to say but let's say I've done the floor of the whole gallery so the floor that you're standing on relates somehow to the object then I'm like so inherently connected to the object right like I'm I'm in the object space I'm not that interested in forcing the viewer to be in the object space I'm more interested in inviting the viewer to observe the object in its space so I guess I would say that I like I like the gallery space like I like if it has like its own whatever color floor or if it has white walls or whatever kind of walls it has I like that separation I like using the the white cube or whatever as something that allows for contemplation so let's let's get into that a little bit like um because it is a different experience when you encounter a kind of complete object, right? Mm -hmm. Sculpture. Or you enter an installation. Yeah. So when I enter an installation, it's more like reading a novel kind of experience <laughs> or in a diorama or in a kind of situation. So. I don't know, it kind of feels like an illusionary experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I encounter a sculpture, it's more of a, a looking, a figuring out, a kind of intimacy, a more of like, a, like I'm interfacing with it. So maybe it's about that intimacy. If it goes too far, you lose the intimacy, mm -hmm. but then you gain simulation experience. Yeah. And if it's too, if you go too much where it's just an object and it's not the stand or anything, it becomes too separated from you. So you're trying to, I imagine you're trying to get to the point where you don't spill over into simulation and you get the intimacy as you push it as far as you can. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Like, I don't really want to have, I guess, simulation is cool or like um, experiential, like where you become, where you become absorbed by the experience. That's not really my interest. My interest is more like what I liked how you were talking about how you try to figure something out. Like I'm very interested in what can happen in the, way that we where our creativity or our imagination is sparked by the act of looking and i feel like when things are more experiential when like you're taken completely over by the art experience there's like a theatricality or like a like engagement that is less inside of this like quiet puzzling that happens in the mind and i'm very interested in that and i guess like the context like the 
the ground or the pedestal or the stand or whatever it is for me is like has so much to do with like setting up a relationship between the object and that thing that becomes part of the puzzle so I want I don't want you to be able to see that context bleed into our context because I want you to see that context yeah does that make sense yeah it does I'm thinking about the allegory of the cave is that Plato oh I don't know the, the allegory of the cave do you know that I don't know it no it's like uh, the story is um, that there's these prisoners or something trapped in a cave and they've never been outside of the cave and I think they can only see the outside world through the reflections of the shadows hitting the wall and that's all they experience you should read it it's, oh. it's ancient Greek text yeah. do you see what I mean yeah, you know yeah. what I'm getting at that's their whole life is just encountering the the shadows or the reflections on the wall that they can see in front of them they know there's an outside world but they don't have any idea what it is outside of the reflection I don't know why I said that but somehow that art is that reflection of the thing that's beyond mm -hmm. that we can't comprehend yeah but somehow we get a little glimpse of what is beyond our ability to you know we don't have sensors for that we don't have language for it mm -hmm. we haven't developed a way to you know like pre-telescope we couldn't really <laughs> see right and so art is a way to kind of journey just like a microscope mm -hmm. into the uncanny realms that are beyond our senses or ability mm -hmm. right like somehow in this kind of inner world into the mind right mm -hmm. they, the mind is just as vast as say like the universe right so or the ocean our consciousness is just as vast so it's like one of our tools that it's like a, our way of exploring that realm mm -hmm. maybe the fact that you leave this openness this uncanniness almost like a puzzle type there's always this opening like if you just put an object on the pedestal it would be like okay I got it <laughs> but you never let us get it Oh, that's really interesting yeah. that you say that because I used to, not intentionally, but almost always make artwork that couldn't quite be understood. Yeah. And I had a studio visit with someone and they were like, Ellie, you're really friendly. Like people get along with you. People have an easy time talking with you. Your artworks like kind of holds us at arm's distance. Like what's up with that? And I have over the years taken that comment very seriously, like wanting to have like a more of an open back and forth with the viewer like wanting wanting there to be things to puzzle about and to have satisfaction with i didn't used to use color like i didn't do anything that would satisfy the viewer at all and now my work is visually satisfying like there's shapes and colors and textures and you know the relationship between flat and round things and you know like there's a lot of things that you can latch on to pretty quickly which have some element of enjoyment for lack of a better word but that thing where I don't quite want someone to get it is a really interesting thing that I haven't I guess I don't quite have a 
handle on why that's part of my work, but I do think it is part of my work, like some sense of a puzzle, that there are puzzles that may not be solvable. And you can have the two coexist also. Mm -hmm. There's no rules to say <laughs> oh, one is the opposite of the other. If you go in this direction, you take away from that. Right. They can both coexist. Yeah, why do you why do you like that space? I don't really like, know. It's an interesting question. Try to question. figure it out right now. Like, <laughs> Let's try to figure it out. I don't know if we can. I don't know if we can either. But. I mean, I know, I think initially there was some hesitance for me to like come out with my interests. I held things back, which I think was had to do with like a lack of courage or lack of experience of how to use my courage, I guess would be two ways I could say that. But now I don't think it's so much that I actually think there's an interest for me in this, like the tension between what we can know and what we can't know is interesting to me. I don't want you to come to my objects and understand them. And I like you know, I was standing outside photographing the show at Below Grand and this woman walked by and, you know, the piece is interesting. It's three abstract forms sitting on these blue hospital stands. If they were lined up together, they fit together and they make a very abstracted figure on its side with no head and no legs and no arms. So it has this kind of dissociation of the body even though the body's there and for some people they see the body right away and for some people they don't see this don't see the body at all and that's fine with me both of those things are fine with me this woman who is not like a quote-unquote art viewer walked by and she walked up to me and she was like you know what I think that is and I was like no and she was very enthusiastic she's like I think that's a woman's body cut in three parts and I was like yeah you're right it is and it was a moment where she was enjoying the puzzle of figuring it out. And that is interesting to me that there's something about the things we have to figure out. I think this is true. Like I, I like that we have to figure things out. I like that sometimes it's hard. I like that sometimes we don't figure it out or it can't be figured out. I like all of those things. And I, you know, like you're talking about math and engineering and physics and like those are fields where they want a solvable problem, but I kind of like unsolvable problems. And I like that we live with a lot of unsolvable problems. Like, I mean, that goes back to the nature of like living with chronic illness. Like, yeah, I live with a big unsolvable problem, which is relatively solved. So it's like, that's interesting to me. And I think I do like eliciting that desire to solve something and then having it not be solvable. I think I do kind of like having people have that reaction. People often laugh when they look at my work, I think because of the absurdity of the problems they can't solve. Yeah, or like, and there's a pain in that. And mm -hmm. so we laugh Yeah, because it it's pushing buttons and it's like trying to, I agree, like I think there is something about that. I mean, there's the revelation Right, when you don't understand something and all of a sudden it starts to become revealed to you. That movement of n unknowing to sort of getting a sense of knowing is very fulfilling and also more so than just knowing, where you're just like, oh, I know that, I know that. Like, we like when a movie is completely different and it 
take us in a direction we have no idea. I watch a lot of science fiction. Most of the times I can guess the story. There's only like 12 different stories that are repeated <laughs> in different ways. But once in a while you see something and you're like, I did not see where that was coming. And you lo we love that, right? We love being surprised. We love not knowing, not getting it. We want that. Right? When you watch a movie, you don't want to figure it out, right? You want to just be like blown away. And there's a pain involved in that somehow, like a deep pain, I think, which is like kind of moving around in a room with the lights off in the dark, <laughs> trying to navigate it. And there's something kind of scary and painful about that. Yeah, in like visual terms, like when I think about yeah. the decisions I make in my work, like. Sometimes I like to have shapes that seem to be mirroring each other but fail to mirror each other. Or like things that seem like they should line up but then they fail somehow. And that's actually, I think, kind of talking about the pain that you're talking about when you yeah. really, really want something to work but it can't quite work. And, and because it's fixed, it's a sculpture, It'll stay in that state. There's nothing you can do about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my it's like, god! Wait, there, you, can, you know, like moving the picture that's a little crooked, but <laughs> you can never move it, right? Yeah. So you have to face that. There's a piece of information that where the code is off, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got to deal with that. And then what does that mean to the rest of? And but it's many more dimensional mm -hmm. than that, you know. Like imagining, like trying to contemplate a four-dimensional cube, we can't really do that, right? We have to use these like symbolic ways of doing it. Was it tesseract or something? Yeah, I think so. There's no way to really imagine that. Well, so it's like you know, like when I w was doing my drawings, yet, I was no. putting yeah. down these shadows that were a little wrong, and the perspective of the floor tiles was a little wrong. You know, I kept trying to fix them. Like, I actually tried to fix them to make them more right, but I never had the goal of making them right. I wanted them to live very near where you would believe them, but they were wrong. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of like at the heart of what it's like to try to understand these unsolvable problems. And It's a strange approach. Like, imagine if you were... I'm going to make an app for the phone. <laughs> and <laughs> you're, you're making like a game or something. You know where I'm going with I this. I think so. Go ahead. And like usually the goal is to make it work perfectly, right? <laughs> and it almost does. Like once in a while things glitch out. But what if what if an, some app company took the approach that like an artist takes? <laughs> I wonder what you'd wind up with. Like, <laughs> like this app that has like a bunch of functionality but you're not really sure what it is and that's it like kind of crashes 47.6 percent of the time <laughs> but that's like part of it and like it's like you know, a game developer right yeah. maybe somebody should make a game like that i mean memes are kind of like that yeah memes are kind of ruptures they it's totally like you're are. taking this and this and this and you're just like None of it makes sense. You're making somehow, a box that doesn't yeah. have any right angles. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of love it. We love memes, right? Totally. They like, make us laugh because of that same pain you're talking about. It's painful. It's pain. But yeah. not like 
Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt that much. Yeah, but somehow it releases a bit of the stress and anxiety mm -hmm. of like of being alive or mm -hmm. being living in a society or, or whatever. If all the right angles that yeah. we're meant to stick with. Maybe we're just evolution trying to keep entropy at bay <laughs> as long as possible and entropy will win but we can as bi biological creatures we have the ability to kind of push it away we can try yeah. our darndest i feel like that's kind of like gravity you know like i always think that gravity is the like number one problem for sculptors everything you're making you're making against the greatest force the force of gravity and it's kind of our best friend and our worst enemy simultaneously. But I guess entropy is another one. I mean, the play between entropy and, I guess, matter. <laughs> and maybe that's sort of the core of everything. Maybe that's what we're doing. We're just like the universe trying to keep entropy at, at bay somehow. <laughs> that's what we are. We're just pieces of conscious universe trying conscious to push universe, away I love it. entropy yeah. <laughs> but I wonder if you took one of your sculptures one day there'll be an exhibition of sculptures floating in space where there's no or making a sculpture in space, in space. where there's no you don't have to worry about gravity I wonder if somebody has done that probably like but I want to see it explored for like a thousand years great I want to see like a thousand years of artists' exploration into spatial, non-functional aesthetic objects, you know? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or on different planets yeah, like, with the different sorts of gra gravity. Well, it's interesting because, you, know? you know, like, with the ceramic forms, I always am like, well, like, should I resolve it as a 360-degree object or should I give it a bottom? Because a lot of times in sculpture, you can defy gravity, right? You can. You well, so, sort of. You always have gravity, but you can do things that defy gravity. Yeah, in in the story, the narrative that you're creating yes. can defy gravity, right? Yeah. Just like reading a science fiction, and they go into space. Yes. And they, I love science fiction too. Yeah. There's been some really good ones this year. Oh really? Oh my god. Oh my god! You have yeah. to make me a list before you I leave. I will. Yeah. Ones that are like blow you away. Oh, like, great. You'll just be like devastated by some of them. There's this Swedish one, I can't remember the name. It was just talk about pain and uncanniness. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so good, though. So good. So, wait, I, I went off on a tangent. Okay. What were you saying before I went off on the Oh, movie? about 360-degree yeah, yeah. resolution. Yeah, like, I'm always trying to think, like, do I want to be able to turn... You know how when people are first drawing, their drawing teacher will, like, grab their paper and turn it upside down and say, draw it now? Yeah. I have that question with my sculptures. Like, am I going to finish them and then think, okay, I should turn it over? And if you want to be able to do that, you have to have finished it on all sides. But, like, these go in the kiln, they get glazed, they have bottoms, they have to sit on a kiln shelf. Like, they have bottoms. But I always have that question about the bottom, like how far should the part that's unseen be completed? Like how, and so I often will have pieces that I'll finish as 365 degree view pieces, but they'll never ever be seen that way. Yeah, but the ceramics, you're, 
it's all about physics. It's all about gravity and totally. spin and force. Totally. You know. I actually, I'm wondering now that you reminded me about ceramics, if the desire to resolve them as 365 degree, 360 degree objects has to do with the history of ceramics because with like bowls you would always pick them up and see the bottom and they're trimmed and they're like actually attention is paid to all sides of them yeah because you're not because you it use has them to stand. it's functional it stands <laughs> you, you don't but make it to a point where every time you hold the cup you fill it with water it just falls over no yeah it has a bottom but yeah. you wash it and you turn it over to dry and you know like the bottom really matters in ceramics but if you design something for space it wouldn't need a bottom oh interesting it would just need a hole to drink from or some kind of... But it would need a top, a new straw. You'd need some kind of straw, but it would also have to be closed when you're not drinking so it doesn't just fly around. So you'd have to have a different design. Space has such different considerations. Yeah, it has, it has a different... It's a completely different... Like, well, how do you fact, even go to the bathroom in space? Well, I our, have no idea. Yeah, and our bodies must be yeah. so affected by that because so much about our body has to do with gravity. Like, oh yeah, we're not built for space. No, and where not your yet. organs <laughs> sit are like yeah. relate to gravity. They fall and yeah. to gravity. I mean, the longer you're in space, we get really messed up. It doesn't take too long. I think a year after, and oh, that's really? it. Yeah, and then you gotta get out of there. Yeah, the bones start to get weak, and all the organs and scary. Yeah. So your built, hope for gravity-free sculptures is probably no, not. No, but you could, the thing is, you could say, I'm going to make, you could be here on Earth, and you could say, I'm going to make a series of works. That are meant to be space, seen in space. Or for an, a race of beings that are not human. That, but then, really, you should do that as a written project because it that be lives in the space of, as well too it could be but it lives better in the space of the imagination it does well remember that movie a couple of years ago arrival uh -huh. and you remember the language how it was completely functional on, a, on a, just a completely different level and the movie was really about the revelation of language and how a different species mm -hmm. with a different dna would have a completely different outlook to let like we think oh it'll speak a different language but this was like a different perception yeah totally a different, different state reality of time a different experience of time i love that movie because it's it's about that it's not about aliens or it's about like uh exploding our preconceptions about mm -hmm. everything but yet trying to understand it from our place mm -hmm. in the universe that's what I think artists are doing. <laughs> I mean, in your work, it's for sure trying to do that in some kind of way, from my perspective. Yeah, there's something transcendental I find in your work. Hmm. I don't know why. Interesting. Well, I mean, I do think in terms of perspective, like, like my work often is looking for ways to understand what is right in front of us with more pieces of the puzzle, I guess. You know, like I've had a lot, this long interest in display, but it's really an interest in pretense, or... Elaborate on that a little bit. Like, it's like we try to seem a certain way. Yeah. Images show things a certain way, narrative is built a certain way, and I'm interested in interrupting 
the limits, I guess, to how things should seem or should look or should be, you know, comes out of obviously like social norms and advertising and all of the pieces of society that are, that have ideals, ideals of power, ideals of beauty, all those things. And I'm interested in complicating that and being like, well, do you think you'd never fit in? Oh, I'm sorry. Like not so convinced that those are the only ways and wanting to kind of, it's like bat at the edges, like open them up. Like if, if, if there's like a parenthetical shape holding in what is, fits as normal, I want to like open them up so they're more like facing out rather than facing in. Like I want to turn the parentheses the other way. That's cool. Do you think you, did you ever fit into those spaces or? Oh, sure. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like I've had a pretty easy time in a certain way navigating, like being cool enough or normal enough or like. That wasn't a problem. Like I I wasn't like bullied or targeted or I didn't have that. My childhood wasn't so much that. It was kind of almost in a weird way the opposite. Like I feel like I was very well trained at how to fit into our society. I was trained to think, you know, like I, there's, I'm, I definitely was brought up to do my own thinking. I also think that I knew there, that it would be quote unquote, like best or better or whatever to do the fitting in, Mm -hmm. but it has turned out as I've, you know, grown up that I'm, I find that to be a very tight box and one that I'm not that interested in. And you know, you're talking about pain, but like I find it very heartbreaking actually that that we don't really use the like the richness of the human experience or like the full breadth of how of what people know and what people can bring to the table. Like we categorize so many things as strange or weird or you know, like abject or all those things. I so I do like my relationship to pretense is kind of I feel a bit bound by it and I feel heartbroken at the limits it sets. So I think we're becoming bored with pretense anyway. Yeah, I as hope so. as the generation the younger generations take over. Although <laughs> you know, I'm a little But I don't know, maybe we're making our own I'm a little concerned yeah. that, you know, it just transforms. I just feel like we just have such we really do have very tight models yeah, for it's true we are seeing people being more honest about racism there's some honesty about like class oppression but probably needs to be much more if we're gonna be able to like change the standards that are supposed to be normal you know when people face like the harsh realities of not having enough money yeah. It's hard to seem right when you can't pay your bills. Yeah, you have to hustle all the time. But to go back to what you, to, about pretenses, what, um, give me an example of uh, <laughs> like something you see as a pretense that you want to rupture. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and not like big and grand, like racism or, you know, yeah, I'm like, talking about just like a, practical thing I just want to get an understanding of like the thinking that goes behind yeah like um if you can I don't know we could scrap this idea 
Yeah, I mean, this is a this is kind of big and yeah. challenging topic, but it's a it's important to me. Like, I'm just thinking about like being American, and like we say, "Hey, how you doing?" And your answer is, "I'm doing good, thanks." And that's not true in every country. I do know that people Nobody say totally. Nobody does that anywhere else. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've been. Yeah. Except for, not like we do it. Let's we, just no, say that. No, that is like, that's like ingrained yeah. American pretense of being okay, which I think is really what I, like, that's like, I keep coming back to this, like, and that's why I think yeah. it's interesting at the beginning, you're like, oh yeah, I get that, the medical thing in the United States, and I have lived here almost exclusively. I did spend a couple of years outside of the United States many years ago and before I was sick. But that thing about having to be okay and seem okay, I think it really gets under my skin. I think that's like the the root of it. Like, you know, like there's like the pretty stuff and the smart stuff and the wealthy stuff, like all those things that you're supposed to be. Those are related, but that thing where you're supposed to be okay all the time in a world where it's actually quite difficult to be okay. And, you know, like I'm talking about having a chronic illness, I'm sitting with you who also has chronic illness, but it's actually not uncommon. Lots of people deal with things all the time that are really big and important and part of their lives and not always okay. And I guess it kind of unsettles me the way that we're meant to. We definitely have that. Seem okay. Like I other think cultures, I mean, Russian sort of embrace suffering, mm -hmm. sort of a poetic kind of, I'm half Russian, so, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like, yeah. you read the literature, it's like, it's not okay, mm -hmm. you know, like, it's really not, <laughs> in French movies, there, a lot of times there aren't happy endings, yeah. you know what I mean, like, yeah. you're right, I, see, that's why I asked you to, yeah, I think because that's it's like, like you're I think right, that's the piece right. that really bothers me, and that, there is that element, what you said, going all the way back to everything, that there's a, an element, what did you say, there's something radical about art, mm -hmm. just because it like explores that, didn't you say that? Yeah, I was talking about, well, I can't remember, I remember what I was what, saying, no. I, well, I do think it's radical, I think the act of making art is actually radical, uh -huh. but I think I was, maybe I was talking about it being like kind of radical to talk about illness. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, and I because I, you're rupturing the pretense. Exactly. Which I think is kind of how yeah. I'm angling at it, but I suspect that it this is like again like the thing that's like probably the arrow pointing way in the future once I'm like beyond this piece has something to do with the fact that wanting to be able to have us talk openly about what's really not okay. And it's probably bigger than that, but for me, in this work, and the in the place where I am in my thinking, that's kind of where the, you know. No, the, it makes sense because pretense it really is like almost kind of like hiding in the shadows or a numbness, mm -hmm. and you're trying to create insight and mm -hmm. open up the veil and sort of break through the numbness and like develop a language that it's much more complex and deeper mm -hmm. and also not has surfacey like hey how you doing good yeah okay cool bye think of that as an artwork it's the most surface exactly well thing. and that's actually i'm very interested in surface because of that in my yeah. work like i have shiny surfaces i have surfaces you can't penetrate and i like having those 
because they offer like some point of contrast to the kinds of depth. Like I really liked that I was trying to think through something earlier in our conversation and you were like, go ahead, we have time, dig all the way in. And I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons I was interested in doing this conversation with you is because you're one of the few artists and curatorial people that I know who actually wants to really dig, like not, you don't really want to have like a limited kind of conversation. And that's sort of at the heart of what I'm hoping for is like, I want to be able to dig. I want people around me to be able to dig. I, you know, I want people to have feelings. I want them to laugh. I want them to notice that they feel pain, like all of those things. Like, I love it. I, you know, occasionally I'll be near my work and someone will, I'll literally see someone chuckle while yeah. looking at it. And I'll be relieved because I know that means that they've had a thought, reflected on it, and had some kind of emotional reaction to it. And that's, that is important. That's actually what cuts through pretense, right? Like, yeah. that's and I, it. I think the people I've been talking to during COVID, mm -hmm. like, a lot of people I've been meeting over the last year, people are reflecting on their lives and they're, they want depth. They want to go in. Mm -hmm. I don't, I see whatever has happened in the last two years, at least the people I've been meeting, just in my immediate, they're questioning everything. They're going towards depth. Non-artists, like everybody seems to be reflecting. And I think we desire to explore right now. I, that definitely resonates with me. The surface seems to have been ruptured. Sometimes it goes in a direction that's negative. But I've met a lot of people who've like, they shut down their office or their business, or it was done without them wanting to. And now they're like completely rethinking their lives. They moved out of the city and uh, just all different stories like that. Mm -hmm. I f think it's fascinating. Uh, I, yeah, I was going to say it like totally resonates with me too in terms of like how much people are able to talk about health now and like this has been an interest of mine for a long time but now that everybody's dealing with health and fears of loss and losses and illness like everybody on the planet is dealing with this it's been very interesting to see it shift in kind of in broader ways that people can think more about health, illness, and the medical system, and that's yeah. really interesting to me. Like Something you've had to deal with yeah, exactly. your whole life. Exactly. Really. And I wonder, like, do you remember when Ellen taught everyone how to wash their hands? At the beginning of the pandemic, Ellen did this bit on her show, oh, and it kind of went viral. I kind of do remember and it. That's so, it seems like so long it ago. It was so long ago, but I remember <gasps> being... This is probably the wrong reaction to have, yeah. but my reaction was that I was appalled that yeah. no one knew how to wash their hands. I was like, oh my God, Ellen has to do a public service announcement about hand washing. And, you know, I spent my whole life being very concerned about germs, washing my hands all the time and like looking around and being like, oh, that person looks like they have the flu. I have to move away from them. Like that's been my experience of my life. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, it really was as bad as I thought. Like. Nobody even learned that they should wash their hands for the common good of humanity until now on Ellen's show. Like, I was yeah. like, oh, no. You've had to do these extra things because you're more vulnerable. But now we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. <laughs> and we always were. I mean, and 
what's interesting to me is that it became communally important. Yeah. And that's actually, that's the kind of thing that's so interesting to me. Like, the idea of communal health, like that we have to rely on each other, is wow. really beautiful. And it's been something huh. that I've, I guess I've had my feelings hurt about it in the past. Like, that's a funny way to put it, that I've had my feelings hurt. But, like, I have felt... When she was teaching people how to wash their hands, I was like, oh, you didn't learn that for me? These 20 years that I've had to do that on immunosuppressants? Yeah. Like, and then I was like, oh, that's actually really sad that we don't think to take care of our most vulnerable. That's not part of our society. It is in other countries, like where people wear masks when they have a cold. Yeah, I always thought that was cool that uh, usually people from Asia would, when they had a cold, they they wear masks. It makes so much sense now. Like, totally. Why didn't we do this before? This is the first time over the last. I get like two colds a year, mm -hmm. and I've gone like eighteen months without getting a cold. You know, the flu like didn't even <laughs> yeah. happen this year. Yeah. So, but so. to go back to what you're saying, that is such a beautiful thought. This idea of communal health mm -hmm. that it seems like. A beautiful idea that breaks through all the the barriers I mean of I, all the things that are bothering you know, that are disturbing about humanity right now so yeah I mean I loved seeing I mean I know not everybody probably thought of it this way but I did love seeing us have to think as a community and have the question of vulnerability be something that everybody thought about like which communities are vulnerable why are they vulnerable how are they vulnerable? How can we support those communities? And I know there were huge failures in what we managed to do as a community, but in a certain way, it was the first time we had ever used that language. And I think... Yeah, you could say we've done actually kind of amazingly well in some... In a certain for way. For such a selfish... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing, like yeah. when you talk about science, the scientists... Yeah. They collaborated. They collaborated across. And normally they compete. I mean, it's amazing. And there's amazing yeah. things that have happened. And I do yeah. think, like, you know, going back to my interest in the armatures and museums, that's a way of thinking about vulnerable pieces. Like, that is, that's it doing exactly that. Like, they have this job to support the vulnerable, um, these broken yeah. objects. and. So I just think that's such an important part of yeah, our... Yeah, because it affected the elderly. It affected the most vulnerable mm -hmm. first, right? Yeah. That's a big part of my practice, too. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I do vectors. I, I feel like the art world, there is an element to the art world that pushes us in this kind of pyramid Darwinian <laughs> competition. But then there's also a large part of the art world that is very collaborative, very supportive. And I play with both of them, right? And I just want to balance. If I get too much into this, I need that. I think because of what's happened with the art world recently, right, we're definitely going to need more communal. I mean, when we were economically, when we were riding high, and it, then we can go into the super selfish pyramid competition <laughs> scheme. And like, it's fine, it's fun, it's hedonistic. It's actually a good ride. And a lot of creativity comes out of it, right? Like, and it seems like now we need more communal. I don't know what's going to happen, actually, over the next few years. We can't really go back to that. Uh, that's not going to happen, right? Like, 
it'll take a while. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see right. what happens as in the next period. It's really so, hard to imagine. I liked having a break from the game. From that, I don't have to like hustle and try to do the next project. It's get higher on the ladder, <laughs> get a bigger star or something. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I get a break, two years off. <sighs> Actually, it's so great you said that because <laughs> when, I, when I was at home making those drawings, you know, since drawing's not like my regular practice, I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. No one's going anywhere. No one's seeing anything. I'll just work on these and I'm going to work on them as if they're really for me. And I feel like that had like the most amazing results because I could explore something without that pressure yeah. of the pyramid or the ladder or whatever yeah, it is. And, and I think yeah. I have heard that from a bunch of different artists that some of the things that people did when they couldn't go to their studio or when they couldn't do much during the pandemic have been kind of intimate for themselves in a way that I think is hopefully will actually have a pretty big impact on, you know, the next period. I feel like these turning points in our work, when we have like reset moments, like I've often used residencies like that. Yeah. Um, but they're so important for being able to follow something in a direction that's not driven by outside pressures. You know, like when you can have something driven by interest, it's, yeah, I wonder what the, uh, we're going to see what this sort of macro outcome is. Mm -hmm. Things are going to be very different, than, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what. I imagine a lot of um, projects are going to be, um, and obviously galleries and stuff will reopen, but I feel like a lot of things, I don't know. I don't want to speculate <laughs> right now. I'd rather have you speculate. I don't really have any speculation, uh -huh. so... And who cares? <laughs> We're going to get to watch. <laughs> yeah. We'll get a front row seat. So what's next for you? So you did that project? I did the project. Last at, month? Yep, at Below Grand. Um, what and are you doing next? Are you going back into the classroom to teach I'm, in person? I'm starting, yeah, in the fall I'm starting teaching again. Okay. And... We're doing in-person shows at the gallery that I run this year, so that'll be exciting. And Where's the gallery? It's, um, it's called Masmanian Gallery. It's the on-campus gallery at Framingham State where I teach, and mm. it's great. We're doing, this fall we have a Is show. Is it students' work? We show... Or you show outside? Yes, outside. both. Okay. Um, we show students' work mostly in the spring, and in the fall we usually have outside artists come in this year we're doing a show of arpieras, which are these like amazing textiles that were made in Chile by women as like a radical act against the dis los desaparecidos, the people who were stolen, mostly young men and boys. Um, and these women made these tapestries to try to tell the story of their sons being stolen. And then they basically smuggled them out of the country with people to spread the word about it. Oh, that's powerful. It's very, very powerful. This woman, Marjorie Agosin, has a big collection of them, and she's loaning us the collection. Wow, and I want to see those. Oh, yeah, I'll send you images. And yeah. Yeah, it's just, I'm super excited we wow. get to work with her. And, then and you get to write about it, too? You're, you're curating it? or I guess so, yeah. I mean, we're yeah. working together. She wrote a statement, and I'll write okay. something for it. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And then we have a... We always do a show in relationship 
with this Children's Literature Festival, the Suyaki Children's Literature Festival that happens on campus. And this year, Sophie Blackall and Javaka Steptoe are coming. And so we're doing a show with them. They're both awesome illustrators. And that's a really fun project for me because illustration's not my expertise. And so I partner with the festival and they pick the illustrators that are gonna be there. But then I get to like meet the illustrators and talk to them about their work and learn about their practice. And that's really fun. And then um, we have some faculty who are showing on campus and that's always fun. Then we have two faculty coming back from sabbatical and so they'll show their sabbatical work. And Ernez Davis, Okay. She's coming in the spring, and then the other spring shows will all be student shows. We do like a jury yeah. show. So everything's starting up again. Totally starting up. And then you're teaching, and then and I'm you're teaching. an artist, and you're and I'm getting yeah I'm getting ready for a show and yeah so. What's your next show? I feel like I shouldn't talk about it too much just yet, but. I mean, do you want to plug it a little bit or no? Mm. You don't have to. I think I'll skip it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm happy to tell you off, yeah, yeah. off that. But but what time period? Like when yeah, it, so the show's in January, so I'm. Oh, that's it's soon. really soon. So wow. I'm working really hard for that. Yeah. Which is great. That's cool. Yeah. Oh. I've like taken a break from all. I had all these projects for ne last year, mm -hmm. and I was gonna go to Europe and do them all, and it all stopped. And I'm kind of like. Do I really want to start it all up again? Like I totally understand. I don't know. I mean, I'm, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I just actually at the, in the spring when I was invited to do that show up below Grand and I did yeah. a show at Marinaro, at the same time I was like, oh, I'm gonna show art, and it was so satisfying to show art and have conversation with people like, just coming out of, not really doing that at all, and yeah. I wasn't really sure if I was ready. But it was so sweet to have these dialogues start to happen and see that, see how much we like as artists to gather around art. That was just really sweet because I, I kind of had forgotten some of the things that are really special about being artists, looking at art together. That's just really at the heart of what I love about art is the way that you build a dialogue and a discourse with other artists and so I feel like there's a little bit of room for that to be less hurried and more genuine in this coming period, I hope. There's your prediction. That's my prediction, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I did That's my prediction. Yeah, I went to a couple exhibitions during COVID and I remember feeling a little bit like as if it was like, oh yeah, we used to do this many, many years ago <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> That's right. Oh yeah, I remember. I felt like kind of alienated from it all. Like I was walking, like I traveled back in time. <laughs> and I was like, oh yes, this was what we did. But you're right, a big part of our subculture is very much engaged and social and yeah a large part of it is the lone wolf in the studio <laughs> but the other half is that and when you don't you get rid of that and you only have that then we get a little crazy yeah if you're only the lone wolf you're really crazy yeah. and we love it yeah we do the deep dive but then it's like we also do weird stuff that 
This is probably not good for us, you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's funny. Anything else? Are we good? I don't know. I think maybe we're good. I think we're good. Yeah? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. We hit on a lot. I know. I'm going to take some pictures. We have to do a portrait of us. Oh, okay. Um, I want to take some pictures of you. Okay. And uh, just for posting on Instagram, mm -hmm. which I really suck at, but I'll try I to understand. do like one attempt at promotion. Okay, good. Please. <laughs> one attempt at promotion is great. And uh, I already took a couple. I'll take some pictures of these on okay. your shelves because I think it looks cool. Yeah, I think that's I can open that one up too. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. And it's so good to talk to you. It's so you. good to talk to you, too. Um, I hope it was relaxed enough oh, not yeah, to stilt it. I wonder how... Let's see how long it was. That concludes Episode 7 of the Vector Interview Podcast. I want to thank Ellie Craco for participating in the project. It was such an honor to talk with her again. For more information about the exhibition at the Marinaro Gallery, go to marinaro.biz. For information about our current and future projects, go to vector.bz. And you can find us on Instagram at three underscores vector three underscores. I am Peter Gregorio. You can find me on Instagram at peter underscore Gregorio. Javier Barrios can be found at javierbarrios.com. All the music was generously provided by the amazing Liz Kosak. You can find her and check out her projects at zardcom.com. The title drops were provided by my comrade in Quantum Fluctuations, the German artist Sophie Lindner. The cover art was made by the Berlin-based artist Philip Grosinger. This episode was edited with the help of Michael Sokol. And a big thank you to our producer and editor, Todd Tracy. I will leave you with this quote from Ellie Krako. My work requests the act of memory. As you look at front, back, and sides, to glean different pieces of information, you have to hold on to what is not right in front of you. It evokes the use of imagination to fill in a space or continue a fragment of the body to imply a whole. Thank you for listening to Vector Interview.